although this idea happened long before Hallmark movies, I'm going to blame Hallmark movies for creating something inside us, which is the idea that Christmas ought to be a place where every family has everything in order and we all have it together and there's no problems of disharmony in any way. <laughs> um, I remember when I was a boy, we went to a, a Christmas Eve family gathering once and there was obvious some tension in the home. And so everybody just kind of sat there quietly until my uncle arrived, who was a person who did not um, uh, countenance uh, the idea of keeping things unspoken. And he walks into the room and he looks around at everybody and he goes, who died? <laughs> kind of try to speak directly into the problem, right? Uh, and some of us are uh, looking to Christmas with a bit of anxiety because we know that we're going to be encountering friends or family members that create some degree of strife or difficulty and so this morning, this theme of our identity and our unity in Christ is going to be pretty important. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first eight and a half verses today. And this idea of identity and unity was part of the very first message that we had in this series of messages in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, the very first lines of the uh, letter, Paul said that our identity is in Christ, this identity is by grace, and our unity as Christians is based upon this truth of our identity in Christ by grace. And so now in chapter 3, in just a very few short paragraphs later, Paul returns to the same theme of our identity, who we are in Christ, and our unity, not building party factions by jealousy and strife. So, it means two things. One is, this must have been a problem at Corinth for Paul to come to this problem and address it twice in such a short period of time in the letter. And the second is that it must be important for us to address. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 9a. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God 
who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Please have a seat. In these first four verses, Paul addresses once again our identity in Christ. And here he is going to be saying to us, there is such a thing as a worldly or fleshly Christian, but such a person does not act like a Christian. There is such a thing as that, but that person doesn't act as a Christian. Now, there's been a lot of ink that has been spilled over the question of what used to be termed the carnal Christian. Some want to argue that as long as a person has prayed a prayer of salvation, there is assurance of that salvation, even though the person does not act like a Christian. Others want to argue that the term carnal Christian is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. They're either Christians or they're not. Christians live like Christians, and anyone who does not live like a Christian cannot be called a Christian. And may I tell you that entire churches have split, believe it or not, over this somewhat arcane argument. We should grant that there is some biblical evidence on both sides of this divide, which we should expect, since there are good Christians on both sides. Let's think about first what both sides agree on, And that might be a good place to start before we jump headlong into the debate. Both sides agree that 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4 is a critical text to understand if we're going to get a biblical answer to this question. Both sides agree that there are Christians who sin. Both sides agree that the goal of maturity in Christ is getting rid of what the Bible calls our flesh and being a spiritual person with the mind of Christ. Now, there are some stakes in this debate. First, there's no evidence in the Bible of some particular and specific act of surrender or submission, some second work of grace that believers must go through as an experience after their salvation. There's no evidence in the Bible of that. I know that for many people that is their experience. You know, they put their faith in Christ, and then some point along the way they wander away in terms of their uh, obedience to Christ, and then they hear some emotional message, perhaps even an invitation to follow Jesus as Lord, and there's some second experience that they have. I don't deny people those experiences, I simply want to say there's no evidence in the Bible that people must go through such experiences. And the fact that some people do is not to say that all people must. Many people think that they are saved because they prayed a prayer wherein they were assured that if they just said the words, they would escape hell. Most of those folks are not Christians. They are not saved. 
Obedience to Christ as Lord is not optional for the believer. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said on this. If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumption, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Or A.A. Hodge said, you cannot take Christ for justification unless you take him for sanctification. What he means by that is you can't take him to forgive you of your sins forensically, you know, as a a, a declaration of God's justice, and not also take Christ as the one who is going to change your life from the inside out to become like Him. You can't take Christ for one unless you take Him for the other. Hodge goes on to say, think of the sinner coming to Christ and saying, I do not want to be holy. I do not want to be saved from sin. Do not sanctify me now but justify me now. What would be the answer? Could such a person be accepted by God? But we must also note that the assurance of our salvation is not based on our perfection, but on Christ's sacrifice. So there can be a person of tender conscience who could end up thinking that they are not saved when in fact they are. We can, in fact, we do sin, sadly, after our conversion. Everyone agrees to that. The answer is not, as some would have it, a second work of grace in which we become perfected in this life. That's not going to happen. Neither is the answer found in denying that we have carnal tendencies. Instead, we need to continue to review the gospel to our own hearts until the Spirit renews our mind as we daily seek the mind of Christ. So with that in mind, let's dive into verses 1 through 4. There are three terms that are spelled out in these verses, which I think describes the situation in three different categories. Now, up to this point, Paul had described in 1 Corinthians two kinds of people. In chapter 2, look at verse 14, there is the person that Paul calls the natural person. That's a person who is unsaved. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to Him. In fact, He is not able to understand them. That's a natural person. Then there is also, if you look at verse 15 of chapter 2, a person called the spiritual person. This is a person who has the mind of Christ. See the end of verse 16. This, these two terms that are used are describing two kinds of people. The person who is unsaved, not born again, described as a natural person. The term he uses is psuchikos. And then there is the spiritual person. The term that Paul uses is pneumatikos. But now in chapter 3, we are introduced to a third kind of person. He says in verse 1, I could not dress you as pneumatikos, spiritual, but instead, and he doesn't use the word natural, 
Instead, as people, and it's translated here, people of the flesh, the term is sarkinos, a fleshly person. Now, when we say people of the flesh, it's important for us to note that this has little to nothing to do with our physical bodies. Some Christians have interpreted the term flesh in this way and have concluded that our physical bodies are somehow bad. And that leads to all kinds of errors about our bodies, errors about a godly sexuality, errors about exactly what it is we need to get rid of in order to be spiritual. I don't know, this term, sarkinos, fleshly person, is a way of describing a life lived for this world and its appetites rather than a life that is lived with the mind of Christ for Christ. Paul describes these Corinthian brothers here in chapter 3, verse 1, as brothers. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, but as sarkikos, people of the flesh, people who are living for this world and its appetites. Such a person, or excuse me, such a position, uh, requires that Paul address them as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In Christ, yes, but of the flesh, sarkikos, a focus on the physical world and its conveniences, as infants, not ready for solid food. You know, it's interesting here, isn't it, when he says, not ready for solid food, infants. They're, they're babies. Now, in the Gospels, we read about how we can't come into the kingdom of heaven unless we come as a child. That's talking about a childlike faith, a childlike trust. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about being childish. Big difference between childlike and childish, right? Childlike, trusting, childish, selfish. Give me now and I want what the world has. Living for the appetites of this world. The sad part, according to verse 2, is that Paul not only could not address them as spiritual when he was with them, here he is years later. You know, he says, I fed you with milk, past tense, saying, when I was with you, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. But then as he's writing this, years later, he says, and even now, you're not yet ready. That's a sad thing. Years later, they still have not progressed. I had fed you with milk because you weren't ready for meat, and I still cannot give you solid food because even now, you're still not ready because you are still living for the world and its appetites selfishly. Now, one gets the distinct idea that the Corinthians did not like the food that they were getting from Paul, that this milk of the cross was too simple, but they're not ready for the solid food of the cross. The food that Paul is talking about about true food, 
He's not contrasting milk is bad and solid food is good. They both are good. But if all you can digest is milk, it's inappropriate to get meat, steak. It's inappropriate to get Snickers bars. I mentioned that because I like Snickers bars. It's not about two different diets, but about true food. Now, verse 3. <clears throat> How many of you like to be told that you're not doing good? No hands, right? No one likes to be told such things. Can you imagine reading Paul's letter? Don't you think that the hair on the back of your neck would go up? What? Who's he talking? What's he talking about here? How dare he say this? We all get defensive especially when it comes to our own maturity in the faith. So, Paul describes his evidence for such immaturity. He says that as long as there is jealousy and strife among you, you are sarkikos. You are of the flesh. It's interesting, isn't it, that that's the definition it's not for while there is a lack of knowledge. You know, there are people who have believed in Jesus, have lived the Christian life for decades, and still live lives of jealousy and strife. There are people who are professors at theological seminaries who are, by Paul's definition, infants in the faith because they are jealous of their colleagues and they create strife among one another. There are entire churches where for decades people have lived with jealousy and strife and the members of those churches can get 100s on the theology quiz, but they are infants, babies. You see, the definition of maturity here, of being sarkikos or pneumatikos, fleshly or spiritual, is not about what you know. It's about whether or not there is jealousy and strife. Now, note that in verse 3, Paul puts it in the form of a question. The reason why he asks it in the form of a question, I think, is because he's attempting to get the Corinthians to see themselves as they really are. Rather than just straight out say it, he says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, that is, in a way according to the standard of humans, sinful, broken humans? Are you not doing that? The question is trying to get them to say, yes, that's us. Now, <clears throat> another thing that happens when people get defensive is that they always want to ask for examples, right? Well, what's your proof, Paul? You tell us that we're infants. You tell us that we're fleshly. What, what's your evidence for this? And in verse 4, Paul gives his evidence. Now, <clears throat> we know they're not actually asking for the evidence. 
But if they were right there with Paul, Paul knows that they would ask for it, and so he's going to give them some examples of their living according to the flesh. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely according to humans? Paul knows that they are saying this because Chloe's people have come to him directly quoting these comments to Paul. How do I know this? Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. Or verse 11. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, each one of you says, and now he's quoting, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He's quoting the report. And here in chapter 3, do you notice that he is quoting them again when one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos. The Corinthians themselves have heard themselves saying these things. So this is evidentiary. It's giving of the evidence of their being fleshly living according to this world and its appetites. So Paul asks a further question here in verse 4. When you say stuff like this, does it not show that you are acting just like any unsaved person according to humanity? There is such a thing as a worldly Christian, but such a person does not act like a Christian. Let's think about some applications. There are two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. But Christians can be very sarkikos, very fleshly, which means they're not acting like Christians. They need to refresh their identity in Christ. And if... There are people who will not do that. They refuse to do that. They likely are not Christians, no matter how much they may protest that they are. Now, we're going to be talking about this idea of refreshing quite a bit in the new year. I'm looking forward to unpacking that theme more with you on a variety of fronts, how we can be refreshed in our relationship with Jesus. Second application, are you a defensive Christian? You know, are you responding a little bit like uh, the Corinthians would if they, you got approached this way? Be careful. Be careful about that. Just let the Spirit of God do His work. Uh, third application, how would you describe your diet as a believer? Would you say that you're on milk or on the solid food of the cross? Both are of the cross. Both are good diets. Both are good. One is a a demonstration of maturity in Christ. How can you progress in your diet? Have you thought about that? How can I progress in my diet as a Christian? You know, we're going to get to the start of the year and everybody's going to be thinking about what? 
diets, right? It's a time when we think about it. Maybe give some thought to your spiritual diet and how you can progress in that. One way I may commend to you is our Bible reading program. Would encourage you to engage in it. As you think about this question here as we are at the Advent season, and you're about to meet up with friends, family, relatives, some of whom you may not have all that great of a relationship with, and there has been some past jealousy and strife. Perhaps it may be a, a point of contact for you to prayerfully take this text before the Lord and say, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting that I may not be that sarkikos, that fleshly Christian in these relationships with my loved ones that maybe are filled with some anxiety or even some, even just small degree of tension, but rather to say, Lord, help me to be that mature Christian who is seeking to live beyond that idea of jealousy or of strife. Let's look now as we've seen our identity in Christ, now to look at our unity in Christ in verses 5 through 9. The joy of growing together in God's field. Now, the Bible affirms that people do have significance, so don't misread what Paul is about to say here. When he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. What Paul is doing is a comparison. He's saying, compared to God and his kingdom, people are not even whose. They are what's. The translation is excellent here. It isn't saying who is Apollos, who is Paul. It says what. Inanimate objects compared to Christ and his kingdom. Now, he's not saying that they are inanimate objects or that people are insignificant, but he's saying compared to Christ and his kingdom, they are. What is Paul? What is Apollos? We are slaves. That's the word that's used here. Slaves through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul and Apollos are simply conduits of faith. In fact, they're slaves as the Lord assigned to each one his duties. This is the way that Paul views his ministry. He's a slave. He's a what? And it reveals how we ought to view our own, our own ministries, our own lives. Verses 6 and 7, human ministry only has significance in the light of God's continual work. Do you see how Paul describes it? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who is giving the growth. It's kind of interesting, the turn of verb tenses here. I planted, just kind of an event. Apollos watered, kind of an event. But what was going on all along, God is the one who's continually giving the growth. God's giving the growth. Paul and Apollos did stuff, but God was doing the real stuff. 
the one who plants. Look at verse 7. He's nothing. The one who waters, nothing. But it's God who's the one who makes things grow. Now, if that's how it works, we could easily reason then, well, if I'm nothing and the other people are nothing, it's only God that gives the growth, then I guess I don't have to do anything. That can be a temptation for laziness, can't it? After all, our work is nothing, right? No, no, no. Look at verse 8. The planter and the waterer are one. One in stewardship, one in duty, one in responsibility, united in effort. In fact, where there are differences among people, it is clear that there will be differing rewards. Look what it says. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. The Lord is going to reward people according to the standard of the quality of their labor. So the laborers are one in mission, one in effort, but God's going to be the one who distinguishes the measure of that effort. And notice that even here, God is everything. He's the one who both judges the quality of the labor and He's the one who rewards it. The joy of growing together. And the reason why we cannot attribute God's work to people is that a big distinction exists between individuals and the church. Notice how God, Paul describes in verse 9 first the individuals. We are God's fellow workers. Paul and Apollos are workers for God. As such, they are nothings because God is the one who grows things. But there's a glory in this at the same time because of the way Paul describes his workmanship. He says that he and Apollos are God's fellow workers. They are joined with God together in His work. <laughs> There's not a competition between the two of them because both of them are united together with God as God's fellow workers. What a beautiful way to describe what we should be doing with our lives, living them as working together with the Lord. Equally important as God's fellow workers then is where those workers work. So that first part is about individuals. Now we're going to look at the church. You are God's field. The church is God's field. Paul and Apollos are the workers. The church at Corinth is God's field where they are working, one planting and another watering. It's not Paul's field. It's not Apollos' field, it's God's field. The field doesn't belong to Paul, it doesn't belong to Apollos, it belongs to God. So, let's think about some applications in this area of the joy of growing together in God's field. If a church grows and God is not the one making it grow, there will come a time when that church will collapse under the weight of individual glory. Now, it's 
of course true that we should think about, we should think strategically about how to bring the gospel to the world, and we should have the best uh, quality of godly leadership. But if we find in the church our success in human means, we are destined for future trouble. This is why so many churches and ministries have what we might call glory days of the past. We hearken back to the glory days of the past because when you look back to the glory days of the past, there's generally some super talented personality who generated all of the excitement. It's almost always related to a great personality. Now, we go wrong when we think that our work does not matter, and we go wrong when we think that our work is all important. (laughs) Having this balanced view is critical to viewing our work as God views it. It's important because we will receive wages according to our labor. It is unimportant because it's not our work. It's not our field. We are slaves through whom people believe as the Lord assigns us our duties. There's no jealousy or strife when we understand that we are both slaves and God's fellow workers, and when we understand we're working in God's field. Notice the lack of individualism here. We each do our jobs. God makes it work. And yes, God rewards each one for their work, but we work in God's field. It is not in any sense our field. And so I want to ask you one last question. How does that apply to your Christmas gatherings that are coming up in a couple of days? Well, there are likely in your family these kinds of people. A natural person, a person who doesn't know Jesus. The things of the Lord are foolishness, folly to him. He can't understand them. There's also likely some people who have made professions of faith, but they are living in a way that is sarkikos, a fleshly kind of way. They are focused on jealousy and strife and the building of their own kingdoms. May I encourage you, me, as we meet with families to be that spiritual person who recognizes that our position is one of a slave in God's field. It will take away all of those kind of selfish drives to try to correct things. It will take away some of the slights that we may feel or experience, the unfairness that we feel like we've got to defend someone else or defend ourselves. It'll reduce that all when we consider that. And who knows but what God has not put you in your family for such a time as this, to put Jesus on display of showing the joy of growing together in God's field.
Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. Uh, Help us to all be spiritual people, not people that are sarkikos of the flesh. Help us to think about this and especially about our coming family gatherings in an open-handed, slave of Jesus Christ kind of way that we may not have expressions that would come from our lips or our lives of jealousy or of strife, but rather people would see that we have the mind of Christ because we are walking by the Spirit of Christ. Now, Lord, I pray that if there's any here who are walking in that fleshly kind of way, they're believers, but they're, by their jealousy and strife, have been walking in that way. Lord, bring conviction to them and help them to say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Teach me what it means to walk with Jesus in these perhaps very hard family issues. I pray that you would grant your great grace. And then, Lord, we can't but also recognize that there's likely some person or persons here who've never put their faith in Christ. Lord, would you open their eyes? They can't understand the things of God. Perhaps much of what I've said today has just gone over them. They can't really understand it. But, Lord, in this moment, would you help them see that their sin separates them from you. And that if they ask Jesus to forgive them by what he did at the cross, confessing their sin and asking him to transform their lives, to be like Christ, that you will gladly do so because of the power of the cross of Christ to pay for our sins. And so I ask that they would say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I believe you died and rose again, and I believe you can change me from the inside out, and I pray you would give me your eternal life. Now, Lord, as we head into this beautiful season, we pray that you would help us to so walk with you that the very countenance of Christ would be seen in us for your great glory, we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.